In the Christmas of 1932, Krista Winslow was invited to a glamorous house party at a villa in the Semmering Mountains of Austria. There was going to be skiing and tobogganing and a lot of fresh air and exercise. She was the guest of Dorothy Thompson, the highly regarded American journalist, and Dorothy's husband, the Nobel Prize winning writer Sinclair Lewis. Once upon a time, Krista would have been present as a hanger-on, as the wife of the influential Baron Loyosh Hotfany. But this time she was there in her own right, a divorcee, a writer, and of course something of a celebrity. The snow never came, the rain fell unremittingly. The party became fractious and boozy. Coming down the stairs one evening, Dorothy saw Krista waiting for her. When she reached her, Krista gave her hostess a kiss on the throat, followed by one on her breast. Dorothy was overwhelmed. She wrote in her diary afterwards, Immediately, I felt the strange, soft feeling, curious, of being at home and at rest. Within a few days, the party broke up, and a smaller group, including Krista and Dorothy, travelled to Budapest to stay at the Hotfany house. Neither woman was happy. Dorothy's husband was an alcoholic, given to violent outbursts. Krista had just had an argument with Lutzi, her ex, over money. They cried on each other's shoulders. There was mutual consolation, and there was something else as well. What in God's name does one call this sensibility if it be not love, wrote Dorothy that night, because for her, this definitely was love. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece, and this is episode 12, An Expert on Girls. Dorothy Thompson had met the Baron and Baroness Hotfunny years before in the 1920s in Budapest. At that time, it was the Baron who was her friend. She had had very little to do with this bored, rather distant wife who didn't belong with them on the political side of the table. At that time, Krista was unknown, and her husband the kind of prominent figure that an ambitious American journalist wanted to get to know. And then, suddenly, things were different. Time moved on, and it was Krista who was the one to know. It was Krista who was associated with one of the most significant and adored films to come out of Germany for years. Her story, so personal, so painfully real in its depiction of young love, catapulted her into the centre of critical attention. She had always been a somebody, always noticed. Dorothy, hardly glamorous, a soberly dressed grown-up head girl of a woman, had remembered one of her first sightings of Krista a decade before, recalled how beautiful she found her, how intrigued she'd been about her life. But she described her then as lonely, repressed and volcanic. She speculated on the hot funny marriage, on whether there was any physical element to it, and concluded that Lutzi had never understood Krista, but was eternally fascinated by her. Dorothy Thompson was a writing machine, committing both the world around her and her personal life to paper on a daily basis. Born into a strict Methodist household, Dorothy joined the suffragist movement as a young woman before looking further afield for work. Desperate to pursue journalism as a career, she and a friend arrived in Europe in the 1920s intent on making names for themselves as foreign correspondents. 
She had all the traits necessary for the job. Commitment, single-mindedness, a strong work ethic and luck. And she landed a string of scoops from the word go. Fluent in German, she ended up living in Vienna and married the Hungarian writer Joseph Bard. Eventually, she was appointed as bureau chief for the Public Ledger and the New York Evening Post and became an authority on Central Europe. More than that, a bit of a lone voice warning about the rise of extremism. Fed up with her husband's affairs, she left him and very soon met Sinclair Lewis. They married and made a home for themselves in Vermont. But Dorothy was restless and she went backwards and forwards to Europe, eventually succeeding where many hadn't, getting an interview with the leader of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, one Adolf Hitler. Dorothy had been pressing to talk to Hitler for years, having followed closely the rise of the party and researched their views and their aims. But Hitler didn't do foreign interviews at the beginning, not sensing any need to address the world beyond Germany. Finally, in 1931, he surprised everyone by assenting. This was the scoop of scoops. Dorothy was not the kind of journalist to mince her words. The article that resulted from the interview is both famous and infamous. When I finally walked into Adolf Hitler's salon in the Kaiserhof Hotel, I was convinced that I was meeting the future dictator of Germany, she wrote, before adding. In something less than 50 seconds, I was quite sure that I was not. The man she encountered there, she wrote, was formless, almost faceless, a caricature. He is inconsequential and voluble, ill-poised, insecure, the very prototype of the little man. Commentators have made much of the fact that she could have got it so wrong about his likelihood of becoming a dictator. But of course, what's of real interest to us now is this brutally honest assessment of a little man, someone who had something to prove. What she misjudged was whether others would find him as distasteful or even comical as she did. Within two years, he was Chancellor of Germany, and a year after that, she was kicked out of the country. Dorothy would go on, Cassandra-like, to warn Americans about what was happening in Germany, and once the war began, became a passionate and tireless advocate of America joining it. Before all that, however, the two women would have a glorious moment together living in Italy. In the spring after the Semmering party, Dorothy took her young son and his nurse with her to a villa in Portofino on the Italian Riviera, where she set up home with Christa. They lived harmoniously, writing all morning in separate rooms, meeting for lunch, writing more, dining, writing, bed. We don't know if the bed was shared. In her letters to her husband, Dorothy merely told him not to worry, she wasn't that away. But Dorothy's friends felt differently, that there was a far more intimate relationship going on. The two women were very close. Dorothy was bowled over by Krista. Krista was certainly tender and sweet with Dorothy. Whether she was as smitten is hard to know. Very early on, Krista gave Dorothy her new novel, The Child Manuela, to read, and Dorothy was deeply moved by it, recognising much of her own youth in its pages. I'm slightly puzzled as to how Dorothy read the book so early, because as far as I can tell it wasn't published until the following year in 1933 or 1934 in Britain. It's possible she read it in manuscript form. Although The Child Manuela came out after the play and the film, there is some suggestion that Krista had originally conceived and written the idea as a novel and then put it aside. She certainly produced a lot of work, 
and, like all writers, would shelve things if they didn't take off at once. The Child Manuela is far more revealing about Christa's life than either the play or the film, and is a useful companion piece to both. What comes as a surprise is that in the book, the school element is only part of the story. If you know any details of Christa's early life, then right from the word go, the book feels autobiographical. The first paragraph describes how the newborn baby Manuela had been longed for by her parents and two older brothers, how she was passionately loved in anticipation. The baby girl was born at Christmas. Christa was born on the 23rd of December and arrived like a gift for her family. Everything is there. The garrison town called Dunheim in place of Darmstadt, the carousing father who was a colonel in the cavalry, the sudden death of the beloved older brother, the gentle mother also slipping away, but not before warning the daughter of what was to come. And, of course, the heart-rending scene with the child coming across her mother's body in a darkened bedroom, the image with which we started this podcast series. Why did Christa feel the need to reproduce her life so vividly? Was it for the reader or for herself? She would often place a version of herself and her situation at the centre of her stories. Was it vanity? I don't think so. We have only a few accounts of her character, but she clearly divided opinion. For some, like Dorothy's American Society friends, she was too much, too emotional, too given to storms of feeling. Christa's own throwaway line to a newspaper reporter about the effects of her strict education tells us a little more about her mood swings. The school had made her an imbalanced and immature creature, she said, in whom fits of intense shyness alternated with periods of unnatural boisterousness. She was insecure. She wanted to impress, and yet she was scared of putting herself forward. She wanted to be the centre of attention, and yet she wanted to run away and hide. Remember the damning portrait given of her a few episodes back by the Hungarian woman writer? She was described as aloof, snobbish, emotionally excessive. How does this fit with the friends who adored her, who knew only a kind and generous and loving woman? Her correspondence with Dorothy, all now archived at the University of Syracuse, reveals a funny, restless, passionate, outspoken but vulnerable individual who loves and needs company. Krista often signed her letters to Dorothy as Chris and filled them with terms of endearment and memories of kisses and embraces. Krista's novel made a huge impression on Dorothy, as it must have so many readers. Her play, we know, elicited responses from women who were ecstatic to see something like their own lives mirrored at last. Relationships at school that were dismissed as crushes, but which they themselves knew to be something more. One day I'd love to write something about the phenomenon of girls' school literature. There have been some very celebrated books set in boys' public schools, but the spirit-crushing nature of much of girls' education, certainly in the 20s and 30s, also found vent in perhaps less well-known works of fiction. One of the most vivid girls' school stories I've come across is Regiment of Women by Clements Dane, written some 14 years before Christa's play was first performed. It's a surprising and powerful book, compelling and dense. It centres on an English girls' school where a charismatic and worshipped teacher called Claire Hartill rules the hearts and minds of the girls in her charge. She's manipulative, often ruthless. She is the antithesis of Fräulein von Bernburg. The German teacher inspired devotion in her charges through her soft side. 
Claire Harthill has no soft side. She wins the love of a troubled and impressionable young pupil called Louise, who then kills herself when the teacher grows tired of her, leaping from a window. It's this tragic aspect of the story that led to accusations of plagiarism levelled at Christa from the French publication La Griffe in 1932. Just as her film was taking off globally and reaching so many women, so she found herself under suspicion of having stolen the idea straight from the best-selling British novel. Christa denied it vigorously, claiming that not only was her story based on her own childhood, but that she'd never even heard of Regiment of Women. It's been suggested since that Christa could have been influenced by Clement Stane's novel, but I personally can't see how anyone would come to that conclusion. At the centre of Christa's story is a girl, is her, in fact, a lively, defiant, motherless child looking for affection. In contrast, poor Louise in Clement Stane's story is a victim, a pawn, grotesquely picked up and discarded by a monstrous teacher who goes on to use the child's death to try and bring down a colleague. The introduction to the Virago edition of Regiment of Women puts it beautifully when it describes Claire Harthill as not a safe role model for the younger lesbian. And the main difference to me is how Clement Stane, who was fascinated by the growing science of psychology, explores her character's complex psyche so deeply. Krista doesn't work like that. She is looking inward. She is at the heart of her work. If the child Manuela is not answering a deep need in the writer to make sense of her own childhood, then I don't know what is. Krista was only 29 years old when Regiment of Women came out, just before the end of the First World War. She was a married woman, living in a mansion in Hungary with her literary husband, and mixing with a worldly artistic set. We can only speculate as to whether the literary set of Hungary was discussing this British novel at that time and in Christa's company. If it did come up in conversation, then perhaps it did no more than give her the urge to tell her own story. In any case, years later, Christa was asked by Karl Froelich, who had produced Machen in Uniform, to make a legally binding statement denying plagiarism so that he could counteract these accusations. This she did, writing to him to say that she vigorously rejected the charges. Interestingly, by the time Froelich was asking for the clarification, he was in charge of the Reich's Filmkammer and wanted its press department to defend the work. That would suggest that Mehrchen was still enjoying screenings in Germany and official endorsement well into the mid to late 30s. Back to Portofino, where Krista and Dorothy have spent a glorious six weeks writing, eating well, enjoying their surroundings and the peace and pleasure of each other's company but it had to end. When it was time for Dorothy to pick up her professional engagements back home, they travelled to America together. By this time, of course, Krista was of intense interest to American literary circles as the woman behind Machen in uniform. Dorothy was extremely well-known back home, and they arrived as celebrities and were instantly booked up for talks and events. Dorothy's husband was not comfortable with Krista's presence, and only reluctantly agreed to allow the German writer to stay at their Vermont home. Dorothy, always a political animal, always on a crusade, wanted it to be known that both she and Christa were anti-Nazis. They were ahead of their time making such pronouncements, especially in America. But both women had just come from a part of the world that was changing rapidly, and both sensed that it was going the wrong way. They separately embarked on lecture tours, and Christa certainly felt it incumbent on her to try and write something meaningful about the situation back in Germany. In fact, she was brimming with ideas for stories 
articles, plays and books at this period. It's possible that she was inspired by the extraordinary drive and industry of her beloved Dorothy, whose typewriter simply never rested. Dorothy Thompson was an exceptional being, with a non-stop brain, constantly analysing herself and her world. She seemed to have to account for herself all the time. She was restless, an achiever. While Krista was in America, she and Dorothy were together on and off. When separated, they would correspond. Krista regaling Dorothy with stories of her experiences with American food, shops, new people, new places. For a while, Krista stayed with Dorothy at her other home just outside New York, and there she witnessed the violent disintegration of Dorothy's marriage. I think that whatever the status of their love affair, Dorothy and Krista were good friends to each other, providing vital support and distraction at a time of stress and pressure for Dorothy and enormous change for Krista. In 1934, Krista returned to Europe and to her writing. Dorothy was not far behind her, but within weeks of being in Berlin, Dorothy was ordered to leave the country, the first American correspondent ever to have received such an order. One of her articles in this period gives us a taste of her foresight. There are to be no minorities of opinion in the new Germany, she wrote, and no division of loyalties. Both Dorothy and Krista had a pretty good idea of where things were headed, even at this early stage. Krista had pointed out to Dorothy in an earlier letter that our world is passing away. From now on, Dorothy would have to experience it as a professional observer from a distance, while Krista would have to live in it. Their friendship remained solid, but their love affair was ending. Just before Dorothy's expulsion, while the two women were together in Austria, Krista had become very taken with an Italian opera singer, Ezio Pinza, who had been performing in Salzburg. She was so enamoured of this man that she went back to the States with him when he was touring. She later made light of the affair, wondered jokingly how it came about, but Dorothy sensed that things were ending between them. For Dorothy, it had certainly been more than a close friendship with Krista. Krista, she suspected aloud in a letter, had not felt the same way that all the threads had run from Dorothy to Krista and not the way back. Although Krista was back in America, their relationship, the intense and mutually supportive one, was over. Krista was trying to get Hollywood interested in her script ideas. Nothing came of them, and in 1935 she returned to Germany. Times were darkening, and the two women were concerning themselves with issues close to their hearts. Dorothy lived and breathed politics and world affairs, was fearless in speaking her mind and galvanising others. Krista, while politically anti-Nazi, was, I would argue, more concerned with sexual politics and always far more personal and self-regarding when it came to her subjects. Her stories were nearly always about people finding themselves, coming to terms with who they were. Like her, they were yearning for fulfilment. Her unpublished play... Sylvia and Sibyl, for example, told the story of how the 16-year-old daughter of a widowed colonel falls in love with the mother of a friend. This self-same scenario also arose in her novel Child Manuela. Presumably, it came from life, another childhood agony that needed to be worked through. That's not to say that she shied away from wider social issues in her fiction, but there was usually a sexual basis. An unpublished novel called Die Halbe Geiger, or Half the Violin, 
explores the pain and lies of a marriage between a gay man and a straight woman. It was an issue that was both personal and socially relevant, and Krista felt that she was only happy and any good when she was addressing aspects of sexual identity and civil liberties. Krista spent the next few years writing and travelling between Germany, Austria and Hungary. She still owned a house in Munich, although I don't know if she continued to be supported financially by Lazzi, her ex-husband. Her great love was her car, and she adored the freedom and independence of being on the road. At home, she worked in the garden when she wasn't writing or entertaining friends. She was a society figure, pictured at the races, well-dressed as ever, a larger-than-life, glamorous, charming woman of 50. Prussian by birth, a German speaker, non-Jewish, she wasn't immediately any kind of perceived threat to the Nazis. But eventually her name was put on a list of literary undesirables, probably for reasons of her sexually questionable subject matter. But she was also deemed, in the language of the party, politically unreliable. It was in this period that she completed her book Life Begins, a semi-autobiographical story that we've already visited when learning about her days as a young sculptor. She didn't even try and get it published in Germany, but turned to Britain, where it came out in English translation in 1936. Her next novel, Passagiera, appeared in 1938, this time brought out by a Dutch publishing house. I haven't read it, but I know it's about a woman who falls in love with a sailor while travelling from San Francisco to Genoa. I do wonder, given that she mentioned the allure of Italian sailors in her letter to Dorothy when discussing the opera singer Ezio Pinza, that this story might have formed in her mind at that point. Why would she change the habit of a lifetime and not draw from her own experiences? The light of Mädchen in Uniform still shone on Krista even after all this time. She had moved on, written other stories, travelled widely, had several affairs, started to acquire a political stance, but even then her name was primarily linked to this cinematic phenomenon. And it was a phenomenon, still playing widely, still loved, still watched, and her play, adapted into English, was, thanks to Leontine Zagen, appearing not only in the West End of London, but also in the United States and South Africa. Audiences around the world were enjoying their own local versions of the play. In Great Britain, as we learnt right at the beginning, it was dear to many, many people, with performances being put on in church halls and local theatres up and down the country. Nothing Krista would ever write could come close to this success. Did she mind? Did any of the women mind? Leontine, the director, wrote that its influence stretched far beyond simply the play itself. Herta Thieler, the lead actress, would always be known as the Manuela actress. Krista couldn't shrug off her reputation as an expert on schoolgirl themes. Just as Leontine found that she kept getting offers to direct plays about groups of girls, so Krista seemed only to be of interest for similar projects. In 1938, she was asked by the Austrian director G.W. Pabst, then based in France, to write the screenplay to his new movie, Jeune Fille en Détresse, or Girls in Trouble, a story set partially in a girls' boarding school. Krista got in her car and headed for Paris. Next time on The Kiss, we find Krista stuck in France and learn of the shocking brutality of life in an occupied country.
The Kiss was written and presented by Bibi Birkin. It was directed by Mark Lingwood. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam Webber and original music composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions.